0: Last year marked the 50th anniversary of the publication of Silent Spring. In the book, biologist Rachel Carson describes a silent world without bird song, brought on as a result of the use of pesticides. The book has been credited with laying the foundations of the modern environmentalist movement. This is Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast, an interview show produced by the Ayn Rand Institute dealing with issues related to public policy, including science and environmentalism, healthcare, economic policy, the law, and foreign policy. I'm Amanda Maxim, and I'm sitting down in our Irvine studio with Keith Lockich, a writer and fellow at the Ayn Rand Institute, for a special Earth Day episode. Dr. Lockich specializes in policy issues surrounding environmentalism. Great to have you on the program.
1: Thanks, Amanda. Great to be here.
0: So, Silent Spring was published 50 years ago. Why are people still talking about it?
1: Yeah, Silent Spring is an important book. I mean, it's it's credited with single-handedly launching the environmentalist movement. Now, that's an overstatement. Uh, I mean, the roots of the environmentalist movement go back, you know, decades and even centuries before Silent Spring, and there were other books that were important and influential. But it was a very important book. It sold millions of copies after it was published in 1962. It was an instant bestseller, and it really did galvanize public opinion around the issue that it focuses on so uh it it is an important book as far as uh, driving the formation of the modern environmentalist movement and the issues that she wrote about even though so the the focus of the book was chemicals and pesticides and that sort of thing and those issues are still around today though they're not sort of the most important issues that environmentalists talk about um today but um What's important about the book is is some of the ideas that she put forward and and the perspective that she put forward really express the environmentalist philosophy. And and that I think is why it still is is looked at today as a classic text of the movement and why it's important to think about it and to, you know, know what the book was about and to understand its legacy because it it Everything, to understand the environmentalist movement, you know, everything, all, all the important things there are to understand about the movement are contained in the book, and it's worth focusing on and discussing for that reason.
0: So who was Rachel Carson, and, and what, is the, what is the book about?
1: Yeah, so Rachel Carson was a wildlife biologist. She had a master's degree in zoology, and she actually worked for the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service, so she was a government biologist. But she was also a, a very popular science writer. So she wrote books about, um, about the oceans and marine biology. You know, think Jacques Cousteau without the submersibles. Yeah. Um, so she, and, and I mean, the job of a science writer is to take scientific discoveries and, and the technical results from the scientific literature and sort of translate them for the general public, and communicate scientific ideas to the general public. And she was a very good writer. I mean, there's no question, even Silent Spring is a very well-written book. It's it's easy to read, it's poetic in places, very eloquent. Um, and so this is something that she was very good at doing, was taking scientific ideas and and writing books, popular books for the general public, communicating those ideas. So in Silent Spring, her focus was on uh, chemical pesticides and and i mean basically there was a, a new class of chemical pesticides that were developed and were had gone into widespread use in the 1940s and 50s in in agriculture and in public health uses and her goal in the book was to bring to the public's attention um what she saw as sort of unacceptable risks from these pesticides. She was highly critical of these pesticides. And what she was trying to do in the book was, you know, to sort of alert the public to this, you know, potential, you know, huge risk that people were unaware of. And that's sort of nominally what her goal was in the book. So DDT is, is one of this class of pesticides that she was talking about. It's kind of the poster child for the issues that she was talking about, which is why it's her name and, the, and Silent Spring is sort of associated with DDT. But the book is slightly broader than that. It's this whole class of pesticides that, that she was uh, focused on.
0: So she was basing her claims on some science. How accurate were, were the claims that she made in the book?
1: Well, unfortunately, this is the problem with Silent Spring. So, if you read the book, I mean, it, it comes across as an attempt at a careful piece of science writing, and you know, so the, I mean, I mean, the job of the science writer, as I indicated, is, is to sort of synthesize, bring together technical issues from the literature that the general public wouldn't necessarily be aware of and bring it all together and present it in a way the public can understand. And this is, this is definitely how she comes across in the book, that she's scoured the literature, you know, she's done the research, and she's gone and looked at what scientists had discovered, and this is what she's reporting. Unfortunately, um, I mean, the problem is that what she actually ends up doing in the book is distorting the issues in major ways. Um, she's not just sort of reporting the findings of scientists. She's presenting a, a highly distorted picture of what the effects were of, of these chemicals and the way they were used. And I mean, it's partly in the things that she leaves out of the book, um, as much as the things that she puts in the book, that she distorts the the actual state of affairs with respect to these chemicals and and their the role that that they did play and they should play in public health and that sort of thing
0: so what kind of distortions are you talking about
1: one of the things that she does in the book is i mean she's very critical of the way the pesticides were used in the 40s and 50s now on that issue there is a there is a certain legitimate point. Basically, at the time in the '40s and '50s, you had state and local government agencies um, taking up these pesticides, and and in the name of public health or in the name of fighting some um, pest at the state or local level, you know they would just take these things and blanket the country with them. And often, you know, they would do it without the consent of the public, and often without even informing them that they were going to do it and often against their wishes. There were cases where there were farmers who who put in petitions to that they didn't want certain things sprayed and these these government authorities would basically just do it anyway. Mm-hmm. So uh, but there's a big difference between criticizing the misuse or abuse or overuse of certain chemical pesticides by government agencies versus attacking the chemicals themselves. And um, she sort of packages those things together, and she doesn't carefully distinguish between them. Now, um, you know, it's it's you you if you read the book, it's impossible to reach the end of the book and not be left with this, you know, screaming conclusion that there's absolutely no way to use these chemicals safely. That what she's arguing against is that we should not be using them at all even though she i mean she hedges and she says oh of course we're you know we're not I'm not saying we shouldn't use them at all but but the the argument that she presents in the book it by the time you get to the end of it it's pretty clear that what's coming across transparently is a viewpoint that we should not be using these chemicals so one of the things that i would argue is a distortion is it's one thing to be critical of the misuse of certain chemicals or and the abuse of them, but it's another thing altogether to say that we shouldn't be using them altogether. And and that the latter is the kind of conclusion that you get by the end of the book.
0: How were the chemicals being used at the time? And what were they beneficial?
1: Yeah, so this is one of the important things that Carson leaves out of the book. Um, the this new class of chemical pesticides of which DDT is you know an important one kind of the poster child for the whole group um these were absolutely critical for agriculture and for public health as i mentioned before they were they were introduced in the 40s and 50s um and You know, in agriculture, they were brought into use as pesticides, you know, to help control insects that were destroying crops and that sort of thing. And they were part of changes in American agriculture that, uh, you know, that consisted of the application of science and technology and, and new methods to agriculture that completely transformed the field and led to I mean, just huge increases in crop output and so on. I've seen one statistic that said that between around 1940 and around 1980, so over a 40-year period, crop output in the U.S. basically more than doubled. Uh, So it went from like 250 million metric tons in around 1940 to something like 610 metric tons around 1980. With only a three percent increase in cultivated land area, wow. so you're getting huge amount of more um, agricultural output from the same, essentially the same cultivated land area, and this is because of advanced, you know, agricultural techniques and, you know, the, um, I mean, you have to include the use of pest- fertilizers and and high yield crops, but judicious use of these kinds of pesticides was a was a crucial. Uh, factor in that. And I mean, given population growth over that period, um, I mean, you had these kinds of advances just made a huge difference in in um, making sure that the world was producing sufficient qualities of high quality food. Um, so, you know, these pesticides were incredibly important for agriculture. Um, they were incredibly important for public health as well. And DDT in particular, I mean it's important to note that that you know it, it has a certain toxicity and it is a toxic chemical, but if you compare it to the class of pesticides and chemicals that were used before that, I mean this is another thing that she doesn't talk about in Silent Spring. I mean prior to the advent of these this class of pesticides that includes DDT, you had pesticides that were that were Coming, that were synthesized from compounds of arsenic and lead and mercury and these kind of things, and these were, these were much worse, much more toxic and more dangerous uh, to public health than um, compounds like DDT. Part of the whole reason people were so excited about DDT is precisely because it was way safer than what people were using before, but the whole thrust of Carson's book is, we're now exposed to this new horrible threat of DDT um so d d t and these other pesticides uh you know had had a massive importance for playing a role in this agricultural revolution that's benefited countless human lives.
0: well what about disease control and public health?
1: yeah, I mean this is another crucial area i mean, let me say a little bit about d d t itself because that is is relevant to this issue in particular so I mean, this is a compound that was just sort of dis- synthesized almost accidentally just in the laboratory. In, in the 19th century, nothing was really done with it. They didn't really know much about its properties. In 1939, it was sort of rediscovered by a chemist named Paul Miller, um, <clears throat> who discovered that it had insecticidal properties. It discovered that as a, as a, it was a contact insecticide that could kill mosquitoes and other similar organisms. And um, so this was, this was discovered in 1939, right at the outbreak of World War II. And in World War II, um, DDT actually played an enormously beneficial role. Uh, I mean, this is a kind of an amazing fact that I, I, I was surprised when I learned this, but more soldiers died of typhus from that you know uh, con- which you contract from a kind of body lice um, than were killed in world war one than were killed in battle Wow! so in in the first world war more people are dying from this insect-borne disease than from fighting on the front um, in world war ii they had the they had ddt and they used it you basically you had this powder and soldiers could sort of shake it all over their body and it would kill the body lice and it basically eradicated typhus from the allied armies. Um, I mean people have argued that it actually played a role in in uh, our winning World War II. I I don't know, I'm not a military expert so I don't have a view on that but um, I mean there's no question that it was absolutely crucial, it played an absolutely crucial role in saving the lives of of our soldiers in World War II Um, and as it started to be used for malaria control and for other kind of public health uses, um, it was very quickly recognized as an absolutely life-saving compound. Muller uh, was awarded the Nobel Prize in, in Physiology and Medicine in 1948 for this discovery. Um, and as this was hailed as one of the greatest, uh, one of the greatest public health discoveries ever. And I mean, I mean um, you find this in the literature. You find comments from prominent scientists and scientific agencies praising DDT as a lifesaver. So the National Academy of Sciences um, praised it. Uh, estimated that in in a couple of decades following its introduction, it prevented on the order of half a million or, or sorry, five hundred million deaths.
0: What was threatening so many people?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think it, this is this number probably comes out of the whole malaria issue. So, malaria—I mean, even, even today, I mean, malaria is one of the most important killers in the world. I, I, don't, I don't remember the exact statistics, but it's as far as causes of death in the world today, it's right up there with AIDS. I think it's even maybe an even more important killer than than AIDS. Um, so, this is a disease that that kills. You know, close to a million people a year even today, and 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 um, many many more get infected with it. So this is a it's a mosquito-borne disease, and um, it. I mean, a hundred years ago, malaria was all endemic all over the world. I mean, I mean. like two-thirds of the human population were living in areas where malaria naturally occurs. Even in the United States, in European countries, malaria was just something that people took for granted as something they had to live with. So in the late 40s, early 50s, uh, it, there was a decision to take on this issue and try to eradicate malaria. So so when the insecticidal properties of DDT were discovered they realized it could be used as an agent in this campaign to eradicate so it it would it would kill the mosquitoes that transmit the malaria organism so you could use it as a tool in this campaign to eradicate malaria and and I mean this this campaign was very successful I mean malaria was essentially eradicated from the United States it was eradicated from large areas of Europe Um, and and you know, the the campaign was moving into Southeast Asia and Africa and all these places where malaria um, is still around. One sort of famous number that people like to cite on this issue um, is the is the effect that the use of DDT had in Sri Lanka, um, or what was then Ceylon. So prior to the use of DDT as an insecticide, um, you know, the, the number of cases of malaria in the country were in the millions. And then they started to use DDT to control the mosquitoes, and in 1963, it dropped to a low of like 17 cases. You know, not 17,000 or 17 million, but literally 17 cases of of the disease in the country. So, I mean, this is incredibly dramatic. I mean, you're talking about you're talking about millions of lives, millions of people not contracting this debilitating disease, and you know a significant number of those people not dying from it i mean these are relevant facts this is relevant information if someone is trying to evaluate ddt as a chemical trying to look at its risks and look at its benefits the 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 role that this chemical played in agricultural improvements and in saving lives in these public health campaigns is crucial information that they need to have to have an objective evaluation of, you know, what's really going on here. And it, Carson makes no mention of any of this. She doesn't talk about the benefits at all. Um, she, doesn't, she doesn't talk about it's she doesn't. She doesn't make the comparison between previous forms of pesticides and talk about how much better and safer these chemicals are and And she basically makes no mention of um, just what an absolute benefit these the, these chemicals were to human life.
0: She doesn't mention it at all.
1: She does talk about the malaria spray campaign, but um, the only reason she brings it into the book is to talk about the phenomenon of insect resistance. So basically, um, when she talks about the sorry, of the role that DDT played in the campaign against malaria, her sole reason for talking about it is to claim that it's all been a big failure. It's all going to backfire. Insects have developed resistance. And now, um, you know, malaria is going to resurge even worse than it, than it was before. And so the use of DDT has been completely ineffectual. And, and uh, you know, she, so she's bringing it in. She spends a couple of pages on it in the book. And the reason she brings it in is to cite it as an argument against DDT as opposed to an argument in its favor.
0: Does she have a point about resistance? I mean, isn't that something that's that's true, that insects have become resistant to DDT? Does she have a point with that?
1: Well, yes and no. So, um, I mean, obviously insect resistance is a real phenomenon. I mean, it's it's just it's a, a natural consequence of Darwin's theory of evolution. So if you... If you have a population of mosquitoes and you use an insecticide against them you'll kill all the mosquitoes except the ones that through reasons of genetic variation um have a natural kind of resistance against that and you'll so you'll sort of select out those ones in the and the population that remains will consist of insects that are more resistant to that insecticide now but the problem is the way carson talks about the phenomenon of insect resistance in the book is is inaccurate and kind of presents a distorted picture of what's going on. So, I mean, people who use chemicals in public health in agriculture, I mean, they know about the phenomenon of insect resistance. It's not like this is news to people, to biologists and entomologists who are specialists in this area and who are designing these these uh, these campaigns to uh, for pest control. Um, so. It's a fact that they have to take into account and there are methods of, of uh, you know, there, there are pest control methods that take insect resistance into account and work with it. So, I mean, one. So, for instance, one of the things that Carson you know one idea that she puts forward in the book and that you still sometimes hear people talking about today is the idea that that as a result of using these chemicals you're going to breed super bugs so these are somehow bugs that are that are stronger and resistant to everything under the sun and you're going to have to use stronger chemicals and it's going to be this sort of escalating war arms race in effect where you have to develop stronger pesticides and then they develop stronger and you know next thing the bugs are developing super resistance and um you know and this is a distorted picture of how this actually works is what actually happens with a with a with resistance is what you're doing when you when you use an insecticide you're you're selecting for insects that have resistance to for say DDT, but what that ends up doing is actually reducing the genetic variability across the population. What makes a population sort of vibrant and healthy and resistant to to things is is a is a wide degree of genetic variability. So if you if you select for insects that are resistant to DDT, these these this the population is not you know somehow stronger or more resilient. On the whole, the population is actually weaker and and easier to then go after with other pesticides you could use things that that operate by a different mechanism and if they're you know if you have a group of mosquitoes that's resistant to DDT um, and has a certain genetic makeup that makes it resistant to one kind of chemical compound that it's likely that it's not going to be resistant to other forms of pest control Um, and so you know there are ways that you can i mean there are methods that scientists have for for dealing with the issue of insect resistance now if you just stop using so if you if you use ddt and then you just stop using it and you don't do anything else yeah you're going to get a, a resurgence of ddt resistant mosquitoes that and that's going to create an even bigger problem for you but the problem is so this this was part of the legacy of Silent Spring. So as a result of the book and the criticisms that she makes of the chemical, there was a huge um, uh, groundswell of public fervor that was generated that led to you know political action in the United States and led to a kind of worldwide animus against the use of DDT.
0: So what happened as a consequence of this call to action surrounding pesticides?
1: Yeah so um, Silent Spring was published in 1962 and um, <clears throat> that put into the public consciousness this, this distorted view of the importance of DDT and the dangers and and, and that sort of thing. And over the this, this subsequent decade, a campaign to stop the use of these chemicals grew and it became part of the growing environmentalism. This is one of the kind of first issues that the what was then called the ecology movement took up. And you know, there was a lot of momentum behind this that led to the formation of the EPA um, and then in 1972 to the banning of DDT in the United States. Um, now, and so the United States sort of took the lead and banned the banned DDT in this country other industrialized nations around the world followed suit, and um, even though the DDT was not sort of formally banned everywhere in the world, uh, this animus against it led to it being dropped from use in the campaign in the campaign to eradicate malaria. So, um, you and part of what was going on here is you had countries where who, whose funding was dependent on aid agencies that were based in Europe or in the United States. And if and if those aid agencies didn't want DDT to be used because of the this animus that was generated against it, then they wouldn't fund it and the countries wouldn't have access to it. Even though it wasn't formally banned in these countries, in effect, it dropped out of use. And um, I mean, basically, the result was that Countries where malaria was still endemic did not have an effective tool against against it, and you did see a resurgence of malaria as a, a worldwide killer. And you know, to this day, it's as I mentioned before. To this day, it's still one of the most vicious, um, one one of the most deadliest diseases on the planet. And to this day, you still get on the order of a million deaths a year. I think last year, something like 655,000 people died from malaria in, in non-industrialized countries. Um, this is part of the legacy of Silent Spring, unfortunately.
0: So if mosquitoes became resistant to DDT, then should we not use it today? Is there still some reason that we should be using it or talking about it?
1: Oh, I mean that's a good that's a good question. So this, I mean, this is another thing that Rachel Carson doesn't quite get right in her book. So um, part of the way DDT works, so it 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 kills mosquitoes that it comes into contact with, but it also for instance for ones that are that become resistant to it 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 acts as an irritant and it acts as what they call a spatial repellent. So the way DDT is used in malaria control is they'll spray the inside walls of houses and the idea is when people are sleeping at night, you know, the mosquitoes will rest on the walls of the house and then they'll and when people are sleeping, they'll come down and they'll bite them and they'll transmit the organism to them. So if you've sprayed the inside of the house and the mosquitoes are repelled, they won't they don't enter the house and that acts as an effective way of preventing people from coming into contact with them and getting the disease. Now that, so even for a population of mosquitoes that's become resistant, has developed a partial resistance to DDT, it still work, functions in this way as an irritant and as a, as a spatial repellent. So this, this property of DDT as being a repellent was something that people had observed, I mean, before Carson even wrote the book and she writes about this as a flaw of DDT so what she says is the mosquito she says in the book that you know it, it doesn't work because the mosquitoes uh, are, are bothered by it and they leave the house and so they don't get killed by it and so it's not an effective agent of malaria control but she kind of misses the whole point that if they if they leave and it functions in this way as a spatial repellent then it's doing what it's supposed to do and it is it's doing it is helping with the problem so um, DDT definitely, there, there definitely is still, a, could still play a crucial role in malaria control today. And you have public health officials and scientists who who are passionately advocate for for, it. I mean, it is still used in parts of the world today, But you have people passionately advocating for it to be increasingly used and for it to be used more. Um, and the fact that it's not being used as widely as it could and should be, I think is definitely, as I said before, I mean, this is part of Rachel Carson's legacy. This is part of the legacy of this environmentalist um, animus against pesticides that had its origin in her book.
0: So you talk about some of these ungrounded fears or these distortions in the book. Um, one of the things that she talks about is cancer. Is that one of the things that you're referring to?
1: Yeah, she, ha- she de- devotes a couple of chapters to basically the claim that as a result of these chemical pesticides and other chemicals that people have introduced into our lives, that there's going to be basically this massive cancer epidemic. I mean, she titles one of the chapters one in four, and the implication is one in four people are going to be dying of cancer as a result of these things. At, I mean, at the time she wrote the book, this was an incredibly speculative claim. There was there was almost no evidence that DDT was even a carcinogen and and, and that there were any cases that you could cite, and and she does some pretty ridiculous things in the book. She talks about one case of a woman who, you know, had spiders in her basement, and she goes around spraying for spiders, and like two weeks later, she's diagnosed with leukemia. Now, I'm not an oncologist or a cancer specialist, but I don't think it's the kind of thing that, that uh, you have an exposure to a carcinogen, and then two weeks later, you're diagnosed with leukemia. So, but she just uncritically puts that kind of anecdotal claim in the book. Um, and there 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 was there was no basis for the claims that she was making about the carcinogenicity of these chemicals in nineteen sixty two and today, I mean, so this is a we talked about the fact that this is that DDT people were you know, sp- pow- spraying the powder, shaking the powder all over their bodies in World War Two. Mm-hmm. This is a chemical that was that was the, the these agencies, government agencies were spraying willy nilly all over the place, blanketing the country in the stuff. Um, there were experiments where human volunteers would eat DDT like every day for two years. And there's absolutely no evidence that this led that that this had any deleterious health effects, let alone was going to lead to an epidemic of cancer. There's a famous scientist who was one of the, you know, kind of one of the most ardent critics of Rachel Carson and who he was, he testified before the EPA and he, uh, you know, was very outspoken in criticizing uh, the claims that she makes in Silent Spring. He used to go around giving talks about this subject, and he would bring a box of DDT with him and, and you know, eat a spoonful of it in front of the audience just to really put his money where his mouth is. I mean, he really, you know, to, to defend the idea that this is, this is a safe chemical, and these claims that she was making were just completely outrageous and unfounded.
0: At the beginning of the podcast, you mentioned that the book was influential in the modern environmentalist movement and help form like you said their legacy. Can you tell me a little bit more about that?
1: Yeah one of the things that you see in Silent Spring is Carson is expressing a definite perspective on man's relationship with nature and this is a perspective that really is at the core of today's environmentalist movement and I mean she she, she's not super explicit about this the focus of the book really is is her arguments or you know and, and i think distorted scientific arguments against the chemicals but she does every now and then she'll say something in passing and and you kind of see her expressing these these fundamental environmentalist perspectives and the the perspective that comes through is this idea that, that it's inherently self-destructive for man to be tampering with nature. So the idea is that nature has its has its natural timescales, its evolutionary timescales on which processes occur and which chemicals are, you know, washed from the soils and dealt with by, you know, being broken down and so on. And when man comes along and sprays these chemicals everywhere, we're... we're totally interfering with these natural timescales and natural processes, and nature can't cope with it and, it, and we're going to destroy ourselves. And you see this, I mean, this idea is core to environmentalism as a philosophy, and you see it in every issue from population issues about resources and population, climate change. I mean, this, it's all premised on this idea that, that human industrial activity is changing the world in ways that are going to be destructive and that we won't be able to cope with. But what this leads to in practice, what this idea leads to in practice, is that environmentalists environmentalists basically end up opposing anything that human beings want to do to transform the world for human benefit. And let me give you an example of this. So in Silent Spring, Rachel Carson is arguing against the use of all these chemical pesticides, but she proposes an alternative. She says we should be using more biological controls, uh, methods of pest control. And so the kinds of things that she suggests as an alternative, as a positive solution is, for instance, if you have a problem where a pest has um, been inadvertently imported from some foreign country, so you've got some species of ant or whatever that's not native to America and it somehow got in here on a cargo ship or whatever, and then it's taking over and so she, and and people want to use pesticides to go after this creature. She'll say, No, 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 what you should do instead is we should use more biological control. So we should go to the go to the or country of origin, find the natural predators for that organism, bring those in and use those in a and so she talks about how this can be done in a careful, judicious way, and you know, we can be much more responsible. Now if you ask and if you suggest if, if you would suggest this to an environmentalist today as a as a method of pest control, what you would get is an outraged look how with, with, you know the, uh, the how can you possibly contemplate bringing in invasive species as a solution? The, their view would be that this is even worse tampering with nature than using chemical pesticides. So they would look at that in horror and yet this is what she's proposing as a solution. And, and this is what you find, this is what I have observed in studying the environmentalist movement. Whatever issue they're fighting, whenever they propose any kind of solution, those solutions are never actually meant to be real solutions. Um, and if, because, well, let me, let me concretize that. So take the issue of, of energy. So today environmentalists are opposed to fossil fuels. Fossil fuels are polluting, they cause climate change, whatever you know, whatever they, they want to complain about them. So we have to stop using fossil fuels. Well, you know, 85% of the world's energy comes from fossil fuels. And energy, you know, is something that we can't live without. I mean, everything we do is driven by energy. So if you're not going to use fossil fuels, what's the alternative? So they say, oh, well, we can use solar panels. We can use, you know, the sun and the wind. Um, You know, we need to use green energy. Okay, fine. So leave aside the fact that just based on physics and economics, it's, it's basically impossible to power our Today's industrial civilization using these forms of energy, but leave that aside. What you find is, so the the environmentalists are the ones saying we should be using solar power. we should be using wind power. So you have companies that go off and try to do this. they They try to build solar installations in the Mojave Desert to generate electricity, you know, using solar power. They build these giant wind farms um, in different places around the world. Now, who are the people who are on the front lines fighting against these kinds of energy installations? Well, it's the environmentalists. You get the environmentalists complaining, how are you going to go, are you going to, you know, interfere with the pristine ecosystem of the Mojave Desert by building a solar installation or, you know, with the with the wind farms? I mean, look at all the birds that are killed in the wind turbines. Um, so... Any time you have somebody putting forward a supposedly eco-friendly solution, it's the environmentalists who are on the front lines fighting that very solution in the name of saving the environment. What's going on here is anything that human beings do in order to further human life involves, quote, interfering with nature. We have to create material products in order to sustain our lives and secure our happiness in order to flourish on this planet. We have to take raw materials and transform them into the products that we need to live our life. But it's precisely that interference with nature or tampering with nature that environmentalists are against. And when you look at it from that point of view, if, if your basic premise is that tampering with nature is bad, is going to be destructive, is wrong, then there's nothing that human beings can do you're always going to find reasons to oppose any kind of uh, attempt at human industrial activity so whether it's green energy um, whether it's biological methods of pest control you know whatever whatever kind of solution somebody proposes to an environmentalist problem so long as that solution also you know, actually does something and involves, inter, you know, using the earth to accomplish some human end, environmentalists are going to be opposed to it. And so it's this basic perspective that Carson is putting forward in the book really is one that really is um, a, a foundational principle of the environmentalist movement is this idea that, that it's wrong for man to tamper with nature as such. So even though she herself would say she's in favor of this kind of pest control I think it's it's actually logically inconsistent with the viewpoint that she's putting forward and you know today's environmentalists would even argue against that. So as 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 one writer has put I really like this formulation that the basic goal of the environmentalist movement is to is not to protect the earth for man but from man.
0: So are you saying that we should be protecting the earth for man? what would that look like as an approach
1: well i mean the whole issue of saving the earth does the earth need to be saved i don't think the earth needs to be saved what i think there's a whole the, the whole perspective is 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 kind of distorted that that we're doing things that are destroying the earth and we have to stop doing them um, basically what we need to be doing is Improving man's environment, which is what industrial capitalism has been doing for two centuries. The industrial revolution and the and um, you know the the growth of industry in free countries has transformed the earth uh, for in in ways that have had an absolutely massive beneficial transformation to human life. You know, life expectancies have doubled, um, the population has grown. Um, and the quality of life is inconceivably better today than it was 200 years ago for most of the of the people who benefited from the results of industrialization. What we what what people who are people who are concerned about human quality of life what they should be what they should not do is support the environmentalist movement because fundamentally the environmentalist movement is not about um, creating a better quality of life for human beings is about stopping people from doing anything that makes their life better to save the earth as an end in itself to protect nature apart from man if you're if you're concerned about human life and you want a quality of life to be better for human beings you should be an ardent defender of laissez-faire capitalism and industrialization you should be advocating you know for you should be cheering news that, that this new fracking technology has, uh, has unleashed oceans of natural gas that will last hundreds of years, rather than wailing about it and complaining that this will lead to the destruction of humanity. You, know, you, should, be, you should be in favor of industrial-scale energy and industrial capitalism.
0: Well, Dr. Lockage, thank you for being here.
1: Thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun.
0: You've been listening to Eye to Eye, an Ayn Rand Institute podcast, a special Earth Day episode, Silent Spring, 50 Years Later, with guest Keith Lockage. Information and episodes of this podcast are available on the Voices for Reason blog at blog.aynrandcenter.org or by searching iTunes. You can find more information about Ayn Rand and her ideas on the web at aynrand.org. I'm Amanda Maxim for Eye to Eye.